Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. So today we're going to talk about workplace conflict, what's good about it, what's bad, and what you can do when you need to fix it if it needs to be fixed at all. Personally, myself, I love a little conflict. Um, I am the second of four children, and I remember quite clearly as a young kid initiating conflict between my siblings when I was bored. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, so there wasn't much to do there. So I actually um, enjoyed that. What's interesting is with three children of my own, I now see my middle son um, doing the same thing with his siblings. When he's bored, he might just, um, you know, spark up a little bit of conflict between either his brother or sister, and it's quite interesting to watch. Uh, But I know for some, conflict can be a really, really daunting situation, and yet for others, Uh, Sometimes I think they're perhaps a little bit too eager to engage and can find themselves in difficult situations that they don't know how to get out of. Um, And so today for the conversation, I'm joined by Liz Kislik, uh, who is a management consultant with 30 years experience. And Liz helps teams solve their thorniest problems while strengthening their top and bottom lines. She is an executive coach. She is a TEDx speaker, um, and she's a contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Um, So looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Liz. I'm so happy to be with you, Shelley. And I'm already laughing because I talk about conflict all the time. I'm an eldest. And I don't like it one bit. <laughs> so it's it just goes to show you, I probably work in the area because I really like people. I don't mind disagreement one bit. I like the bringing of additional views. I'm always looking for people who have different opinions from mine. Mm. But conflict in the ugly sense that we think about it at work don't like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what version of conflict I engaged in as a kid. Probably it was a little bit of both. (laughs) Definitely got a little bit ugly at times. Um, So I I sort of think about, um, and I I like to talk about conflict because I think we need it. It's how we innovate. It's how we challenge the status quo and, and get better. And, and I think progress, um, How do those that don't like conflict, is it about maintaining harmony? Is that sort of where it comes from? Um, So, yes. And I think the real thing is people are afraid of being thrown out of the tribe. If we are the source of conflict that doesn't feel good, as opposed to the exciting, sparky kind, where we're sharing differences, we're working it out, we're taking everything into consideration, we're making a better product together, and we can tell. When it's not working, many people don't want to be the bad guy. Mm. They don't want to be the one that other people disagree with or don't want to talk to. They don't want to be shunned. So there's a huge fear there. There's another fear that comes, um, we have all had the experience of having a conflict-averse boss, someone who won't make a decision if it means that there will be bad feeling. And some of that is probably just seeking harmony, I agree, but some some of it is also even people with power want to be liked. And does that come back to the tribal community? Yes. Innately what we're sort of wired to to operate as human beings. We're wired for security. We need to be safe. And, you know, today's economy is very different, whether you think of it as the gig economy, the sharing economy, having um, side hustles, those kinds of things. And there are many, many more independent workers than there used to be. 
So the idea of you have to be inside an organization to be safe, on the logical level, we know that's not true. But the idea that we might be cast out in some way, or maybe even worse, not have access to resources, not have status, those are things we've internalized them since we were children. Mm -hmm. So people aren't even conscious about them. But often, you can see those gears turning underneath when you think about who is willing to speak up in certain situations and who not. So even when there's not, uh, one of the questions that I sort of ponder is even when there's not um, an acknowledgement that there might be conflict, there, there might be two people and one might be a little bit like me who like to create a bit of friction with their siblings when they were growing up. Um, and someone else might be, you know, an eldest or an only child or, or who doesn't like the conflict and or doesn't like disharmony or any type of challenge. And those two may engage in a conversation and one may walk away going, that was awesome. That was really, it was a great robust discussion where we really got to the root of the issue. And the other one walks away going, I think I need to go see a therapist because, you know, I, I'm damaged by it. And the lack of awareness on both parts around the intention. And I know like it, it's complex because humans are complex, but I see that a lot and there's not even the, acknowledgement that that was a situation that involved conflict. Right. You know what's so funny? So as you're describing this, I was thinking, we have conflict with ourselves. And when we do, we're often not nice to ourselves. You know, so of course, we think, oh, it's going to be bad, bad enough, the things I say to myself, but somebody on the outside. So this goes, I think, to the values and culture of an organization. And you are exactly right to say two people, because as soon as you have more than one, just given that you can argue with yourself, already there are multiple voices in the room. So as in any other joint activity, some kind of even tacit ground rules help. Mm, great. I, I'm going to give you such a basic one that sounds so silly. Um, we all know somebody, you really should not talk to them till after their second cup of coffee. <laughs> they won't be evil, but they won't really hear you either. You know, it just, they're better after the second cup. It's a really really good guideline not to mess with anybody when they're not in a good frame of mind. Sometimes you must, but why not give yourself the best chance possible? Um, even to the extent that I think it was Dan Ariely who first wrote about a parole court I think in Israel, which was more lenient after lunch, after lunch, because they felt better. They weren't cranky, or as we sometimes say here in the States, hangry. I don't know if you have that expression. <laughs> um, so getting people at the right time for a lively discussion seems like it should be one of the tenets of diplomacy. So that requires a level of awareness um, and not just of self, but of others. And the idea that, you know, who I am is not who other people are and how I like to be interacted with is not how others necessarily like to be acted, you know, interacted with. Um, but it's, it's even those conversations, isn't it? It's the, is that part of setting the ground rules is to go, you know, how is it that you like to be communicated with? If you don't, if you can't see it, if you can't pick it up, is it okay to have that conversation with someone? Not only is it okay, in some ways, thinking about what we said before, 
It's a survival tactic. There are some leaders now, particularly in Silicon Valley, who are actually writing um, like manuals or handbooks, how you deal with me, the boss. I like a one pager. I prefer a PowerPoint. I want you to have studied the subject before you come and talk to me. I want you to come to me and say, I'm interested in this subject. Is it, you know, just detailing the things that they and their teams know about them, because then it's easier for everybody. And to your larger point, if you don't have self-awareness, you may leave an interaction feeling nudgy, uncomfortable, or triumphant without really knowing what happened. And if you don't have awareness that everybody is not like you, you have a hard time at work already. We can't do well at work unless all we do is sit somewhere and write code, write novels, whatever it is. As soon as you're engaged with others, your understanding of them is crucial to your success. Mm, it's so true. And you think about um, a, a lot of leaders will operate from a headspace, but when you you mentioned that you'll have this um, you know, niggling feeling that it really does highlight the need for us to tap into the feeling side of things because, I mean, emotions drive thoughts and behaviour, et cetera. So it's, it's really that focus around what's going on emotionally for you, isn't it? And in the body, because that's where reactions start. Um, one of the things I talk to clients about when they talk about a difficult situation, I ask them about their bodies and where they feel it, mm -hmm. because your body often knows that you think you're in trouble or at risk or you're fearful before you've actually figured out what it is you're fearful about. Sometimes you end up attaching the fear to something quite irrational just because you feel it and you're looking around, you don't know why. Um, so it's a lot more complicated than just your thoughts, yes. And yet that's a, a space that a lot of leaders still want to operate in and they don't really want to um, you know, consider the other softer stuff, which I think is harder. Um, how, how does one become more aware of that if they don't have the awareness of the awareness? The first thing is to be willing. Yeah. And usually that comes from someone who is a good, fair person and they get feedback from somebody on their team, from their board, or often from somebody like me who's brought in to deliver it, uh, sometimes via a 360, mm -hmm. because the organization has decided that a formal process will have some benefit. So they have to be willing in the sense that anybody can sit and hear, have auditory signals coming in for feedback, but refuse it deny it even quietly. Or somebody can say, well, it's not my experience of myself, but if it's a problem for me at work, I want to deal with it. So once somebody is willing, depending on what the feedback says, there are hundreds of kinds of practices. They don't all work for everyone, but they all work for someone. So it's worth cycling through to try different things and see which ones work. What's really important as a leader is cycling through these things, though, is not to be secretive about it, mm. is actually to say, <laughs> struck a chord, yeah. yeah, to say, if not to the entire team, at least to a good colleague, Here's something I'm working on. Will you let me know if you see me doing the thing that's not so good, even interrupt me, but tell me after if I do the thing that's better, because I'm trying to solidify that practice. So keep track of me, help me. Mm. And there's real value in saying that to your team, first of all, because 
just like a person's kids, they love finding you out. You know, they love being able to tell you when you have strayed. Um, so it's like having a little squad all the time that yeah. can give you on the spot feedback. But then they also become engaged if they feel you are on the level and really want to improve. They're rooting for you. And so they're inclined to help you in a more kind way and to let you know when you're doing better. And is the reason that we haven't been doing this for decades around survival and security? So, yes, and it's around what we have believed about power. Ah, yes. Command and control. I'm going to say... um, structured to preserve the power of those who had it earlier. So, you know, in much of Western society, that basically meant white men. But whoever it is, nobody wants to lose it. And you model yourself generally, not always, on those you see ahead of you. So, If you saw people behaving out of command and control, if you saw people acting as authoritarians, if you saw people who were, let's say, benevolent despots, if whatever you saw, you, in most cases, either modeled on it directly or decided, I'm going to do those things, but that one thing, I don't like that thing. I'm not going to do that. And so you have some shifting over time, and as society has changed, the ideas about what good power is, well, those have changed too. Mm. Sounds like the movement of an iceberg, really slow. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that's right, because people will treat each other, most people, or many people, I don't want to say all people, um, but particularly people who are very ego-focused, who have their own insecurities they haven't worked out, they will do things that if you discussed it with them in a different context, they might not even agree with. But in a kind of knee-jerk way or a self-protective defensive way, yes. They will protect their power using old techniques that they did not like when those techniques were applied to them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in your your TED talk, you talk about um, it not necessarily being about an individual. And I can remember for as long as I've been in the workplace, um, this concept around the problem child. (laughs) Um, And I'm always curious about the... Is it the is it that person? And when you look at the behavior, you can absolutely see they're stirring the pot. But there's so much more below the surface. And I always say to leaders when I'm working with them is you didn't hire that version of the person. So where did they come from? What are your views on that? I agree with you 100%. Um, most often the leadership broke the the problem person. That's why they're now the problem person in some way, or the leadership tolerated some circumstance, some structures that were bad for the problem person. And this is how the problem person deals with it by acting like a problem. Um, I wanna give you one difference though. There are organizations that will sometimes hire what they call a disruptor. Now, this is actually an abdication of responsibility in many cases. The leadership could not create the change they think they want. I'm not opining right this moment whether that change is good for them or not. They think they want some change. They think their people are sticks in the mud and won't change. And so they bring in a disruptor. Depending on the organization, this disruptor will do a huge amount of damage, potentially. Or in some organizations, the collective actually masses together and spits them out. That also happens. 
And once in a while, you have all upside where they are disruptive to the status quo, but without harm. But that's exceedingly rare because people who are chosen as disruptors often have the idea of, well, there may be some collateral damage, but it's worth it. Okay. So you can hire a problem person knowing they're a problem, thinking it's worth it, or, well, they'll only be a problem for 18 months and then we'll replace them with a nice, calm person. But forget it. It does, I'm here to tell you, it's very good for me because then you need someone like me to come in and mop up the damage. So it's not good for your organization. Um, the thing about problem people is that you can't persist as a problem in a situation that does not tolerate the kind of problem you're causing. Mm. So if it's about a person and it's actually about the person, you look for the pattern and then a wise and conscientious leader, as soon as a pattern is identified, will give small feedback that grows to be larger feedback. And if necessary, that person is removed. You can do it because it's a workplace. But what's much more likely to be the case is that there are other themes processes, historical norms, there are other things going on in the environment that support that person's problematic behavior. Like companies where the only way you get something is by being the quote squeaky wheel. So people learn to squeak a lot, even though it's annoying to others because that's the way the game is played. So when you first see a problem person, you really have to look carefully to decide whether it is them and their nature or the situation they've found themselves in. Really getting to know um, people at that, um, at, at a deeper level, isn't it? Yeah. Which, you know, if you're going to be working with them for a long time, it just makes sense. It's like knowing that when you start your car, this one needs to sit idling for a minute before you put it into drive. This one can go from a cold start, but in the rain, you have to watch out for that. We adjust ourselves to the equipment and we don't really think about it. We may say, oh, this old machine, but we don't take it personally. We don't blame them. With people, we're inclined to blame them and take it personally. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it, it- it's not about removing the emotion from it because I often hear that and I think that's not the solution because we need to continue to be emotional so that we can remain connected to people. I, um, I recommend with, um, you know, some of the leaders that I work with to utilise organisational values to help to support conversations around behaviour that is creating conflict or, or not necessarily in the best interests of the collective and Mm -hmm. that what that does is it allows you to address the issue but not personalize it to um i don't like that more around the as an organization we uh, you know one of the things that we value um and focus on is let's say um collaboration for example and what that means is blah, 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 and let's talk about this situation and how that kind of played out in line with that. Um, But aside, I mean, I don't know whether, I'd love to hear your views on organisational values because I think they're they're a resource that are really underused. They end up being a poster on the wall and no one really even knows what they are, but I think have so much value. Agreed. Part of what most organisations don't get to is taking those values and operationalizing them. What are the behaviors we would see if someone was really living out these values? Mm -hmm. What are behaviors that are completely counter to that? Well, if you've figured that out in advance, then it's easy to spot the pattern I was talking about before if it's violative of the values. Often a value can be used as a rallying cry. Uh, Say it's collaboration. 
well, I might press on that. Why do we need collaboration? What's it good for? Well, it's good because otherwise we can't take good care of our customers, and that's really important to us. Or it's very important because we can't innovate if we're just alone in our silos. We have to be able to do it together. So then there's this higher purpose for it. Almost everybody, at least conceptually, will sign on to the higher purpose. And then you can ask them for behaviors that visibly serve the higher purpose, as opposed to behaviors that do not. And then those behaviors actually become almost parts of process, as opposed to being personal ticks. I want to go back to something you said before, though, about um, not taking the emotion out. I agree. Sometimes what people mean, though, is can't we just take the drama out? <laughs> right? Uh, and what's your thought on that? <laughs> so um, it's very, it's so fascinating the more people you meet. There are some people who like drama and some people who really will leave an organization if it has drama. We have different tolerance levels. So again, I think we're on the same theme. You have to know your people. A leader who cannot tolerate drama will make bad decisions or avoid making decisions if there's too much drama in the room. They shut down. So if you want to be successful with that leader, you learn how to quiet the drama or how not to mention it. It's not necessary to the case you're making for the resources you need or whatever. Then there are leaders who like drama. I myself would have trouble, I think, staying for the long haul. But give them a little, you know. If what they are interested in is what's going on with people, you have to be very careful not, not to get into gossip. But you want to always have something new and interesting to tell them. And if that's the kind of thing they want, talk to them about the celebrities they like. Keep it out of you know, your, your team. Let it not be about your colleagues. Let it be about somebody else that your leader knows something about. And is it about talking about the, um, what drama serves? Cause I, I mean, I avoid mainstream media because I feel like that's all you get is, is the drama. Um, but I do like excitement around things and I like the newness and, Again, going back to my, I was the second child and um, would get bored. It was my antidote to boredom um, was was creating either conflict or or drama. Um, do we need to understand that a little bit better as as humans around what that serves for us and then how we go about um, shifting our approach to it if it's not you know conducive? It certainly helps. I mean, it helps in the same way. When you're talking about colleagues, on some level, I think it really helps to think of them as loved ones, not as family. Family is different. But as loved ones, as people you truly care about and you care about what's best for them and you want us to do well together. Because when that's the ground you start from, then the fact that this person needs a little spark all the time, and so you bring them riddles or you bring them memes or, or TV or whatever it is that would be exciting to them. I mean, it might actually be the new flowers that just came up in your garden. We are all different. But you bring them those things because then you are feeding their drive for excitement, which usually, often, can go to creativity, innovation, et cetera. It's worth it. Acting like we are all the same or we're all kind of, oh, I don't know, denatured in this bland gray way, who wants to work there? That's no fun. But we've also all known the person who had a problem every week, a new problem, a serious problem. The car broke down, a health thing in the family, a financial thing, uh, always something, always something, always something. 
that's wearing on people. Yes. You want to you want to be as compassionate as possible, but you don't want to gin that up in your group as a norm. Mm. Yeah, good point. Yeah. It, it seems that um a lot of the work that leaders can do around um managing conflict and you know supporting individuals and and what their needs are is around seeing different perspectives and that you know that that a leader needs to kind of do that work on themselves before they um have the capacity to be able to do the work with their people um and one of the things that you say in your ted talk you ask a question you say is that person evil and and I love it because it's like, who's going to say yes? And that's an interesting response in itself. But I love the framing around that. Where did you come up with it? Came to me one day. I was tired of hearing a problem colleague talked about as a problem. They were making a problem. That is true. But they were making it because their mandate pushed them in that direction, and it happened not to be helpful to the person I was working with that day. So after saying, don't you think they have a different perspective? Don't you think there are other things? And asking all kinds of nice, dispassionate questions and getting back this kind of hyper-resistant no, they're so terrible and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, well, if this is a movie, let's dramatize it. So I said, do you think this person is evil? Is that their intent? And then the person I was talking to was quite horrified. Was I accusing him of saying, of course, he would never say such a thing. I said, good, I'm really glad to hear it. Because when you say A, B, C, D, E, F, I was starting to wonder. Nobody wants to work with an evil person. And in fact, if people say that, yes, someone is evil, you really have to figure out what's going on. But in general, all that complaining just means I don't know what to do to make my own situation better. And it's really important to get to that, to then be open to, because what I love about that question is it kind of stops people in their tracks and their patterns and it, it forces them to go, what am I making this mean? And what's the alternative? Cause your alternative is, are they evil or are they just annoying? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a greater tolerance to annoying than there is to evil. So we hope so in the first place, but the other thing is, when you're talking to even a mid-level leader, once they say, oh, no, not evil, just annoying. Well, a mid-level leader ought to be able to handle a little annoyance as part of the job, right? So then you can actually work with them on their tolerance levels. Yes. You can work with them on their misperceptions. You can work with them on the false nature they have that suddenly, because they have such and such level of authority, everyone is supposed to give way to them as has never happened before in their lives. So it's, un- it's funny to me that people would think that suddenly they have a new title and they should have no more problems because of it. When in fact, it leads to more problems, of course, as, as we know. So getting people to see, oh yeah, this comes with the job. Oh, right. Well, for some people that actually becomes a criterion about, do they want to be promoted again? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that ability to, um, see or broaden perspectives or the unwillingness or, or the lack of, um, openness that they have to that can is sometimes what leads to people who are in management positions then taking a step back and going this is not for me I don't like this and um and it and and a lot of the time it it is around that isn't it often that's the case or sometimes you get people who think 
it's not set up right here. Mm. So I should go somewhere else. And they may go several places before they learn that if you are too rigid in your thinking, very few organizations are actually the right place for you. Yeah, very good. And and that realization might come quickly or it might be a very long drawn out process. Happens both ways. It does. So um, I want to change topics um, slightly. Job sharing. So in a world of flexibility and, you know, where we want, we want the same opportunities and we want, you know, we want to be able to do things in the way that suits our, our lifestyle and, and our stages of life. And so um, I have had a job share role um, at one stage and it was horrendous. Um, and I don't know, and I think it is around that conflict and how you deal with different ways of doing things. And I think it does come back to to power or the association with power and success. But I see a lot of conflict that does arise through job sharing. I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts. That is really such a fascinating question. Um, and what came to mind is probably not what you were expecting. More and more, I have seen that when there is conflict, often it's just a disagreement. People have different perspectives, believe different things. But sometimes there are actually differing levels of competence or experience. Mm. And so they are not even positioned to be able to see the same thing. And in a job share, I can see how if the other person were somewhat less competent and didn't realize it, or if you were less competent and didn't realize it, you could think they were out to get you when the real issue is that they're not on target. Something's actually wrong, in effect, structurally, although it's coming from a person. And so diagnosing if there is a gap in competence I think that's a really significant thing because there is no amount of improved behavior that will fix that. Mm. So that's kind of table stakes in some way. Then there's a kind of congruence that's necessary. And you can have it because you both deal with things the same way. I'm thinking about parallel paths right now. And so you stay in a pretty consistent range together. You don't abandon each other. You give each other information. You run on the same track kind of thing. But you can also have significant differences and have it work because you dovetail. Mm. You mesh. And what that might mean is that you develop a process for sharing information concretely, consistently, and doing almost formalistic handoffs. So being extremely explicit about who's handling what and when and how and the responsibilities, whereas the parallel track, um, very congruent people might just be doing it on instinct and it's working because they happen to function the same way. In fact, the dovetailed method, which I just made up, so, you know, (laughs) do whatever you want with it. Um, I think that's a really good model for anybody. Start there. Much of the problem with job sharing, like any other kind of collaboration, is false assumptions. Meant well, but completely inaccurate. And and a lack of open, ongoing, quality communication. First, not even knowing you need it. Just thinking something's wrong over there. Oh, my goodness, something's wrong. Um, And because you're not as aware, going back to your earlier point, Shelley, about self-awareness, you're not as aware of which is your part and which is their part. Mm. And it's very easy then not to take responsibility when what's really important then is to say, 
sharing partner, I have a concern that something's not going as well as we intended. Can we talk about it now? Here are the things that I'm seeing. And being very careful not to make it about me and you as opposed to the the situation. I, I think that's probably a real differentiator, isn't it? Is that it's, you know, you separate the person from the behaviour, but it could also be the person, the behaviour and the actual function. You know, it could be a, a combination of, of all those things. Let's explore all of it. Exactly so. I would say in general, you're best off starting with the situation. Have we agreed about what the expectations and ground rules are? Have we agreed about the goals we're trying to hit? Let's start there. And one of the things to be really careful of, it is amazing, even within the same company, in the same executive team, people will use the same terminology and mean different things. And it doesn't come to light. You, As a stranger, you sit there and you think, what do you mean by business model? What do you mean by business model? Clearly, you mean different things. They don't notice. Yeah. They've been, just been using the language. So you really, right? <laughs> and you do, you need an outsider to come in and go, we got, what, what, what is it you guys are talking about? Like, right. do you even know? <laughs> right. Uh, I wouldn't put it that way, but yes. Yes, exactly so. Because they are operating from the assumptions that they had either when they joined that team or they developed somewhere along the way. And then a new person came in with different assumptions, but nobody noticed that that was what the issue was. So now they just argue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I I want to ask you, you've got elephant cards. Um, And, you know, let's all address the elephant in the room is, conversations that I've been exposed to in the past and I've always wondered why it's an elephant um but talk to us about your elephant cards did it come from you know let's address the elephant in the room concept so (laughs) um as you're learning I make stuff up as it's useful and one day I forget where I was I was in some hotel and in the gift shop, there was a little game for kids. You know, there was a kid's section and it was a game called hide and eek. And there was a mouse and then these various elephants and you had points and it was like a card game. Very cute. And I thought, oh, I'm going to use that for something. So I bought it and I brought those cards with me to a workshop I did for a client that was about teamwork, where there had been conflict conflict in the past. And I dealt them out and I said, I don't know if we're going to need to use these. But sometimes when everybody knows there's a problem and nobody wants to name it, the first step is being willing to say, oh, that problem is operating now. And then you'll cue me because I won't necessarily know. And a brave person midway through played an elephant card. And everybody knew exactly what she meant. And then they, of course, had to explain it to me. I didn't know because I didn't know the history. But because there was a thing to call it, it was exactly as you were saying before. It wasn't about you. This, this other person. It was about this situation that we know is a situation. And very often having a neutral facilitator permits a discussion that you couldn't have otherwise, because that person can add fresh ideas, can draw out things, can protect everybody during the discussion. And so it just became such a useful thing mm. that I do have clients Long after we've had these workshops, they forget the cards. They don't even bring the cards anymore. But in a meeting, someone will say, oh, I'm playing an elephant card. I love it. So you give them a a new language and it's almost metaphorical. And so it, um, yeah, it, it just takes the, I guess it takes the, the intensity out of it and allows it to be discussed. It's a great idea. It creates a structure. So Mm. 
it channels what was previously impermissible into a permissible form. Mm, that's so powerful. Um, I feel like I could talk to you all day. I'm gonna, I, I am gonna stop, but I've got one more question to ask you, and that is around um, humor and how you use humor to work mm-hmm. through conflict. Because I'm classic drop a joke in where, and sometimes n- not great. Um, I'm getting better at that, and I think I used to use humor as an avoidance thing. Uh, And I've started to really focus on where can you use a little bit of humor to lighten the situation, but is there, is there a, I mean, how do you use humor? So I use it a lot in self-deprecating ways. I make fun of myself. I often make fun of my family, poor things, um, but they don't know. And, uh, Sometimes I will make fun of situations or very helpful if you can use something from pop culture, etc. But I rarely use humor. I really have to know the people. And then if I do make a joke, I'm really careful. How did it land? Do I need to explain, buffer, apologize, et cetera? Because um, humor is often at someone's expense. I grew up in a family that uses sarcasm. Sarcasm Mm. can be really damaging to people. So never, never on the job. And in fact, I use it less in my personal life. You also have to know what is the nature of the humor in this place? And does it differ depending on who has power? Mm. And is humor used to create power? Because humor can really be used to wound and sometimes to scapegoat. And if that's part of the environment, I wouldn't use it at all for any reason. Wow. You have to build everybody up first and you have to show why sardonic humor is wounding. And so we don't do that. And, and in effect, you have to, this sounds terrible, but you have to go through a period of protecting against humor if it has been used badly before mm. you got there. Probably from people who were like me earlier in my career, who just didn't have that awareness around what that was, but was just using a resource that was a means to an end or help to get what you needed without putting any conscious awareness around it. Right. Or there are some people who are conscious in the sense that they have learned that when they make a certain kind of joke, the room quiets and they can go on. Or they make a certain kind of joke and a certain issue gets withdrawn. (sighs) But if you see that, you want to stop that. A perfect case study for that. I definitely don't want to go into this, this area. I'm nervously saying this. Politicians do this a lot. But I, you, you see it playing out and you go, whoa, that was a little bit mean. Um, and it's so interesting. I almost think that it could be used as a bit of a case study to build awareness around how humour can be um, both beneficial but also quite deprecating. It's, it's known. It's recognised as a form of gaslighting. Mm. And as a form of maintaining power and suppressing others, can't you take a joke? Why can't you take a joke? What's wrong with you? That's a frame. And it is often used by the group in power, all laughing. We agree. We understand you, the person who is the butt of the joke. What's wrong with you? Now, I've just said that in a very harsh, harsh way. Mm. But that is at the bottom of a lot of workplace humor and has often been used as evidence in harassment suits. Wow. Yeah, right. That's that's a whole next level, isn't it? Yeah. Joking from love is different. I love that. Yeah, the differentiation. Then it's we. Then it can be helpful. Yes. Remember the time when we 
did that bonehead thing and ran out of gas on the way to the client and had to, and we all laugh. So there are story, you know, there's storytelling humor that can often be fine, but you have to look at who is directing it, who it's directed to, and the tone. Wow. Yes. Gosh, I, yeah, that's really um, enlightening to hear that. I, I am going to now go away and just put another filter over um, humor and start to see that um, play out because I hadn't probably connected the two, but you, you're 100% right. I've seen that take place and it's, and that probably hurts the most when you are exposed to that kind of um, situation where you are um, almost being diminished because you don't fit in with, and, and it comes back to what you were talking about originally about being shunted or removed from the tribe is that you know how that can play into it so mm, so many insights we're all different right so it's going to be different for everybody and and checking just makes sense yeah absolutely i love it um thank you so much for the conversation today i think you've really highlighted the broadening of perspectives the um, the awareness that we need to really develop around ourselves and of others and, you know, the the importance of emotional intelligence in the workplace now more than ever has just really been highlighted through this conversation. So um, I appreciate your time. Very happy to be with you, Shelley. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I look forward to another Dynamic Leader conversation with you soon. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging, and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.